Sorry to throw you off there, Andy. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm preaching this morning. I hope that's all right. Uh, we are, we're going to begin a, a series of lessons, actually. Uh, the first, or the Sunday morning lesson for the month of October, uh, outside of our, our gospel meeting, is going to be centered around this idea. Uh, evangelism in Acts. We're going to be looking at different stories of evangelism, uh, hoping to inspire us to participate in it a little bit more. Uh, and... and well, to look at it practically. Let's look at how it is that we can actually uh, improve on this and look at practical things uh, that, that, that will help us uh, in that. Uh, again, we're going to be looking at it each Sunday morning, and I, I hope this is beneficial uh, to us. There's certain studies that are going on throughout, uh, throughout the week. I hope that you'll, you'll seek of ways that perhaps you can uh, participate in those either in your home, uh, in other places. If you have people uh, in mind that you want to share the gospel with or you've been sharing the gospel with, I hope this is inspiration to, to do this even further. I hope that um, you'll seek me and Bob out, that we can maybe help in that or somebody else or in those regards. I hope, point is, I hope these lessons will, will be helpful for you uh, as we all try and uh, attempt to do this a little bit more. Um, you can go ahead and open up your Bibles to, to Acts chapter uh, 8. Um, well, that's going to be the first... Uh, Scripture that we look at this morning. But today's lesson, we're going to be looking at uh, three different chapters in, in Acts, Acts 8, 9, and, and 10. Well, in Acts 9, the Lord tells Ananias that Saul was going to be a chosen instrument. I like that phrase. Uh, an instrument is something that is used for a particular purpose, hoping to achieve a particular sound, if you're talking about music, or hoping to achieve a, a, or serve a particular function if you're talking about uh, building something or using things along those lines. Paul was going to be a chosen instrument. Uh, and he's going to be the Lord's chosen instrument. So he had previously acted against the Lord's church, but this time he would, he would become a proclaimer uh, of Jesus, a proclaimer of the Lord, and he was going to be used in that regard. Earlier in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus says to his apostles that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So prior to appointing Saul to be this chosen instrument, he had appointed the apostles to do the very same thing, that they were going to be witnesses, people who had seen and heard certain things, and then would go out and speak about the things that they had seen and heard. And he challenged his, his apostles to proclaim the name of Jesus in all of these different places. And perhaps motivated by that challenge or just inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, Peter in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, I believe speaking to just everyday members of the church, says in verse 9, he says, But you are a chosen, uh, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him or proclaim his excellencies, some versions say, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now there's a lot jam-packed into that one verse, and we're not going to look at all of those things, but certainly one application of proclaiming the excellencies of him is that these everyday members of, of, of the people that Peter is speaking to would go out talking about the guy who has brought us out of darkness into his, his marvelous light. What we see in the Bible uh, is that God has, has chosen people for specific purposes. And He has chosen people to spread the good news of Christ. Sure, some people were given these specific roles, uh, preachers, evangelists, elders, things along those lines. But the responsibility of proclaiming the praises of Him is something that's given to every single one of us here. 
That's something that we are all responsible for. Uh, And though the world might expect God to be the one who is proclaiming His name to other people, though the world might expect God to reveal Himself in some overt, uh, obvious way, God has kind of, in in some ways, and we talked about this last, last week, put that burden on us. That we would be the ones who would spread His Word. And the book of Acts is a wonderful resource as far as that is concerned. It reveals wonderful stories of evangelism. But the ones that we're going to look at this morning are Acts chapters 8, 9, and 10. And we see uh, the growth of the church uh, in a new way. Acts 8 and verse 4 says, Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the Word. Who are those who had been scattered? These were just Christians. People who had been persecuted in Jerusalem and now were going out to different places. And what are they doing when they go to these different places but preaching the Word? This comes from everyday, ordinary Christians. And it's within these scriptures that we see uh, three different times in Acts 8, 9, and 10, post-resurrection, that God uses divine intervention outside of just miracles, but He uses divine intervention to convert three individuals. So three straight stories where God uses divine intervention to convert three individuals. You see an angel of the Lord, you see Jesus, and you see God speaking through a vision. But in each case, it wasn't the angel, nor was it Jesus, nor was it the vision that revealed the words of salvation to this potential convert. In each case, it's just an ordinary person, God's prized creation, us, people, who speak these words. And so what I hope to convict us of this, of this morning, and particularly throughout the month of October, what I hope to convict us of is, is, is two different things. One, that every one of us see ourselves as a chosen instrument of some kind, into some capacity, that we have been chosen as well to evangelize, to spread the word of God to other people who do not know it, to bring Jesus to other people. Now, I don't mean that that means each and every one of us need to be an evangelist in that official capacity laid out in Ephesians 4. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that. You don't have to leave your job to be able to do this. But at the same time, I do think, I hope that every one of us see that we are responsible for this. We see part of the beauty of the gospel is that anyone can be converted to the gospel. The gospel is not just for one individual group of people or something like that, but anyone can be converted. On the flip side of that, anyone can spread the word as well. And that's, that's a beautiful thing that I hope to challenge us on uh, this morning. And then the other thing is that God has equipped us to do this. Uh, in the stories that we'll read in Acts, God has provided us examples as to how to do this work. And He's given us these things. And I want to explore this, uh, this second point a little further first, and then we'll get, to that. we'll get to that first point. In these three chapters, I want us to look at the individuals who were converted and the evangelists themselves and draw some applications as to how we can proclaim the praises of Him. If you're not already there, go to Acts chapter 8. The story in Acts chapter 8, we read about the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. But before we even get to the eunuch, the person we're first introduced to, uh, as far as the, the, uh, this story is concerned, is the evangelist in this case, which is Philip. Uh, Philip is the evangelist uh, in Acts chapter 8, but 
we've already heard the name Philip, if you're reading through the book of Acts. We heard him in, back in Acts chapter 6. If you remember in Acts 6, there's a specific need uh, that arose. There were these uh, uh, Greek widows who were not being taken care of as they should have been. And the apostles were already going out preaching. They didn't want to be burdened by this, uh, by, by this task. Not to say that the task was any lower, but they had things that they needed to be doing. And so they appointed seven men to be able to look over this. And Philip is one of those seven. What's interesting about that passage, if you look at Acts chapter 6 and verse 3, there was, uh, there was some qualifications they had to pass. And by the way, the qualifications weren't, well, how organized are you? Can, can, are, are you going to be able to handle this task as far as organization is concerned? Are you a go-getter like that? No. No, the, the qualifications to serve in this role was that they were of good repu uh, reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of wisdom. That, those were the qualifications. They had to meet those qualifications in order to serve in this, and Philip certainly uh, uh, passed as far as that is concerned. However, when we get to Acts 8, what's Philip doing? He's not in, or he's not doing this anymore. He's not participating in this role anymore. Actually, he's not even in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 5, we see that he is in Samaria. Uh, whether he was asked to serve in this new role, or whether he took it upon himself to serve in this new role, or whether he's just one of the scattered that's mentioned in verse 4, uh, who went out preaching the word, I don't know. But whatever it is, Philip is now in Samaria preaching the word. And an application that I want us to take from this is that he was ready to preach the word. It didn't just come out of nowhere. It wasn't like someone asked him to do it and then he had to prepare himself. He was already prepared to serve in this role. And we see that, again, based on the qualifications. He was of good reputation. He was full of wisdom. Two pretty good attributes when it comes to spreading the word, right? Do these things apply to us? Um, are we of good reputation uh, in this building? Are we of good reputation outside of this building? Are we of good reputation when we are driving on the way to the building? Are we of good reputation in our jobs, in our schools? Is that what we're, we're trying to, to build? Are we full of wisdom? Are we working on these things? Are we working on these character traits? And by the way, not just because it's pleasing to God, obviously that's certainly a, a, an important aspect of it, but we are working on our character for the purpose of spreading the gospel. Or, or is that part of our motivation as we're trying to become more prepared? Are we seeking opportunities to use the wisdom that, that we have, the knowledge of the Word that we have? I think we certainly see that in Philip. But if we can go back uh, to Philip for, for a minute, um, it's important to note also where Philip was evangelizing. Philip is in Samaria. Uh, Two groups that don't necessarily like each other very much, Jews and Samaritans. You can go throughout the, uh, the Gospel accounts and see that they really didn't like each other. But Philip is out here in Samaria. Now, if you go back to John chapter 4, Jesus had already kind of set uh, the anticipation of this. And now it seems as though Philip is capitalizing on what Jesus had set up. And he goes to Samaria and he starts preaching to them. But on top of that, you get this story of him preaching to uh, Simon, this man named Simon. And Simon is nicknamed the great power of God. How would you like to go up to somebody and start preaching them the gospel and their nickname is the great power of God? I feel like that'd be a little, uh, that'd be a little intimidating to go up to speak to someone like that. And yet he does it and you keep reading and you see that Simon was eventually converted. Um, 
And he does all, uh, there's a lot of good stuff going on in Samaria, except uh, towards the middle of this chapter, despite the good work that's going on, Philip is plucked out of Samaria. Uh, An angel of the Lord, there's your divine intervention, right? An angel of the Lord comes to Philip and says, I want you to go to the desert. I want you to go to this desert road, and I want you to speak to a guy over there. I want you to speak to the Ethiopian eunuch. And that's where we get to uh, this eunuch here. Now, I'm not going to go into detail as to what a eunuch is. You can look that up on your own time. But the practice uh, of making people eunuchs was a global practice, not one practiced by God's people, but it was something uh, that was often done as a form of punishment. More often, though, done just to create a trustworthy official, a trustworthy advisor. This encouraged loyalty to the king. Uh, This encouraged um, uh, them to propose less of a threat to the throne. After all, they don't have a family. They don't have a chance of having a family. There's not going to be some uh, threat of a dynasty coming about or anything like that. So they they would get these people and they would appoint them to this role. And many were given some pretty powerful positions. We see that in this, this eunuch here. Uh, he's given great authority by the queen, charge over the treasury. And many were given that position. But what's interesting, as I was doing some research on this, um, these people, the majority of them, were people who were just kind of taken out of the poorer parts of society. And I think, at least what historians talk about, the reason for that because you're always going to have poor people in society. And, all, and so if something happens to this eunuch or you don't like him anymore and you get rid of him, you can always go find another one. So you would pluck these people out of their own, uh, their own place and make them into a servant of yours. I bring all of this up to say this, this eunuch, this position that he had was not a desirable position. This is not one that people would look up to. Any type of honor they had was only because of their connection to the king. And that was flimsy at best. It could be taken away whenever. And yet, Philip still brings the gospel to him. So we see Philip is talking to both the honored, that's Simon, the great power of God, and the undesirables, the Samaritans, and this eunuch. If we can draw application here, I think one thing we see is that if we're going to fulfill our role in proclaiming Christ to people, proclaiming His name, we must be willing to speak to people who are different than us. That also implies, by the way, that we are somewhat regularly interacting with people who are different than us, right? I mean, that, that's got to be something that we have to determine to do, because I don't know if y'all are like me, you typically like to be around people who like the same things as you, right? I mean, that's human nature for us to gravitate to people who are like us in some ways. However, historically, it's also human nature that those who don't have much in common with other people are kind of left isolated from everybody else, right? They don't have the same opportunities as you might because they don't have the same they don't have the same similarities as you do. And so, sometimes that can, the differences that we might have with someone, maybe that's, maybe that's racial differences. Maybe that's economic differences, physical differences, mental differences. Or maybe the difference is just that this person's kind of awkward. And, and I don't really know how to talk to them. They're strange. I, it, it's hard to hold a conversation. And so, we distance ourselves from people like that. It's just uncomfortable being around... The kingdom of God is not that way. That's not how the kingdom operates. That's not how Philip operates. If if Philip were of a worldly mind, I would think this eunuch would present a pretty uncomfortable situation 
to him. I mean, he's from Ethiopia, so he clearly looks different than he does. There's, maybe there's this proselyte versus Jew thing going on, or at least foreigner versus Jew. Uh, maybe rich versus poor, eunuch versus not. Whatever the issue, whatever the dividing line might have been, Philip didn't care. Philip went, and Philip spoke to him. Let's look at what, though, Philip spoke. Read with me, beginning of verse 30 of Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, beginning of verse 30. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, Well, how could I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this, He was led as a sheep to slaughter. As a lamb before its shearers is silent, he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Another application I want to make from this is that Philip was willing to meet this person where he was. This person clearly had something on his mind, and Philip did not deviate from that. He's, he's, it says in verse 35, beginning from this scripture. I think it's important for us to see that Philip doesn't just jump in with some preset plan to get this guy baptized. Not to say that there's anything wrong with having a plan in mind when speaking to somebody. Not to say there's anything wrong with having important scriptures in your back pocket and things along those lines. There's nothing wrong with setting up a Bible study and having other people come to you and you have this particular topic that you're going to talk about. But I tell you, if someone has a particular thing on their mind that they're wrestling with and they're trying to get through, go to that. Go to that passage and be able to, to, to beginning from there, preach Jesus to them. But here's the difficulty with that. Here's the problem with that, because where people are can sometimes be a pretty difficult spot. Because sometimes, especially if you're interacting with people who are different than you, sometimes where they are is it rather uncomfortable because you know what they might do? They might kind of unload on you some of the sins that they're struggling with. And sometimes that can get pretty uncomfortable pretty fast. Or maybe they start asking these really difficult Bible questions. They, they start turning to, to difficult portions of Scripture that you're kind of unsure about and things like that. Where people are can be a pretty difficult spot. But what Philip was willing to do, first of all, he was ready, he was prepared, he was full of wisdom and knew these things, but at the same time, he didn't go somewhere else. He started with that Scripture. And the other application is, starting with that Scripture, he preached Jesus to him. That's where he was going to go. He preached Jesus to him, and eventually he preached the whole Gospel. If you look back in verse 5 of chapter 8, what is Philip doing there? In verse 5, Philip is in Samaria, and it says that he's doing the exact same thing. He is preaching Jesus to people. We aren't only hoping to meet the desires of whoever it is we're speaking to. Clearly, if they have difficult things on their mind, we need to talk about that. But it is with the, with the goal of getting to Jesus. We cannot say we're preaching the gospel when we are not preaching Jesus. We cannot say we're preaching the gospel when all we're focusing on is just how to make people's lives better in this world. If we are not bringing Jesus to them, we are not preaching the gospel. But that's what he does. 
Beginning with this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. But you can continue reading, and there was clearly more that he shared. We don't have the entire message of what uh, Philip shared, but you can kind of read between the lines and be able to see some things. It wasn't enough for this unit just to know that it's Jesus of Nazareth that, the, that this uh, prophet is speaking about. He clearly spoke more to him based on the fact that the eunuch confessed. The eunuch was baptized. So the message that, that, this, that Philip is preaching, Jesus is the Messiah, this suffering servant as portrayed in Isaiah 53, that you need to believe in him, you need to confess that belief, and you need to be baptized. I think we can see that pretty clearly based on this story. So in the story of Philip, Again, Philip encounters this divine intervention from the Lord. This angel of the Lord speaks in. But was it the angel that spoke the message? No. It was Philip. Are we Philip? Are we going to be Philip and go and speak to people like this? Let's look at Acts 9 now. Turn to Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, uh, this is a passage that might be familiar to some, but if it's not to you, it, it, it talks about this man named Saul. Saul was Jewish. Uh, he was from Tarsus, which, by the way, was like one of the most academic cities of that time. He was extremely intelligent. Uh, he is this Pharisee who is zealous for the law. He learned under one of the greatest teachers around, Gamaliel. This guy is an extremely intelligent, great understanding of the law, great education. But to go along with that, he is extremely zealous, which is a pretty... Well, dangerous combination in this regard, because he is so zealous that we find him in Acts chapter 9 that he is on his way to Damascus to do what? He is going to uphold the law by killing those Christians, by dragging them out of their homes, those who profess Jesus. That's his goal. That's the mission that he's on. His great zeal made, gave him a pretty notorious reputation that exceeded beyond Jerusalem. And then you see, though, in verses 6 through 10, on his way to Damascus, Saul is met by Jesus in the form of a blinding light. There's your divine intervention. And he's told to go to a city. And he's going to go to this city, he's going to speak with a man, and he's going to receive further instruction. And in verse 10, that man is Ananias. Now, Ananias, we don't, we don't have a lot written about him. Certainly not in Acts chapter 9. You can go to Acts chapter 22 where Paul is recounting this story, and he adds a little bit more detail to, as to who this guy is is he's, he's uh, said to be a devout man according to the law, well-respected among the Jews. But who is he outside of that? I mean, was he like a preacher in Damascus? Uh, or was he, just, was he just some guy that Jesus was going to use? Well, regardless of his job, what we see is that uh, uh, Ananias uh, is, seems to be prepared for this, both uh, in character but also just readiness. He stands in attention when Jesus comes before him and speaks. I'm going to read that. Uh, look at Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. This is Jesus speaking to Ananias here. Acts 9, beginning in verse 11. It says, And the Lord said to him, Get up, and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For, for he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all uh, who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, 
For he's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house. Application I want to take from Ananias is that we must be willing to face fears that are presented in evangelizing. I can say this personally, this is, it is an intimidating thing to, to, to share the gospel with people that, you've, that you don't know. I, I, I am not up here today because it comes easily to me. I want you all to know that. This is a difficult thing to do because there are many fears that come. For Ananias, that fear, uh, well, it's pretty understandable, right? It's understandable why he might be afraid. After all, uh, he knows of this persecution that's going on. But he even knows the name of the one who's doing it. And he even knows that that guy, Saul, is on a specific mission to, to our town to, to wreak havoc. And yet he does it. He still obeys this vision. What, what are your fears? What, what are our fears? For Ananias, I think it's a, it's a physical one and certainly a mental one, given the toll that that physical fear would, would play on him. But I'm going to guess we don't have that same fear, or at least not to the same extent, right? But what other fears might a person like Saul present? Um, are, are you intimidated by really smart people? I am. Like, are, are, are you, do you know if you get in a conversation or you get in a debate with this guy, this guy knows how to talk? He's extremely intelligent and he's going to run circles around me. I think Saul would have presented that. Or maybe are you afraid of people who are in power, people who have authority, people where you know if something goes wrong in this conversation, like this guy's got legit power to make my life miserable. I think Saul would have presented that. What are our fears when it comes to speaking the words of Christ to others? I think the lesson we get from Ananias is that whatever that fear is, we're called to put it away. And that's a difficult thing because that requires a whole lot of trust, and really, it requires a lot of preparation on our part, something that we are constantly trying to devote ourselves to. But we must trust in God in this and proclaim His praises as we see Ananias doing. I want to look at Acts chapter 10 now. In Acts chapter 10, we have the conversion of, of Cornelius. Now, in Acts 10, you get a, a, a lot of details, actually, about Cornelius. Uh, he's a centurion, which meant that he was given a military authority, as well as just power within the community. We see that. But we get a lot of uh, characteristics about uh, this man as well. But the most important detail to bring up is that he was a Gentile. And I think perhaps that's one reason why this story is given so much attention is because Cornelius was a, a Gentile. Uh, verses 3 through 5 talks about Cornelius is praying and he sees an angel of God clearly. There's your divine intervention again. And he's given specific instructions. Now it's said that Cornelius, uh, his works have been a memorial to God. That's a good thing, right? Cornelius is a pretty good guy. Um, it says... Um, it says that uh, he had been recognized and accepted uh, as pleasing, these things that he had been doing. Yet, it's interesting that even with this guy being a good guy, doing a lot of good things, there was still more instruction that he needed to hear. We'll have more to say about that in a minute. In a minute. But, um, yet, we, we see him next speaking to uh, a man by the name of 
Peter. Now, you might expect that maybe Saul would be the one because he is this chosen instrument unto the Gentiles. But it's interesting that Peter is now brought in to speak to this man. Peter is the evangelist. And as far as first century preachers are concerned, Peter is like the guy. Uh, after, after Jesus, uh, Peter is the primary character in the story. Acts records wonderful stories of boldness for Peter. He's in and out of prison. He's proclaiming the gospel to Jews ev everywhere, both the powerful and not very powerful He's called by Philip to go to Samaria back in Acts chapter 8 to help with the growth there. And there's great increase in the kingdom because of Peter. But even Peter needed to receive further instruction. So a vision comes to him. And we see that vision in verses 13 through 17. We're not going to read all of that. But what you get in that vision is that there's this great sheet that comes down, if you remember. Uh, and he sees all of these unclean animals. Unclean meaning like these were animals they weren't supposed to touch, they weren't supposed to eat, they weren't supposed to be near, they distanced themselves from this. And yet, not only is he told to come close to it, but he is told in this vision, arise, kill, and eat. Arise, kill, and eat. Now, the Pharisees had a tendency to build up parameters around God's law. Like if God's law said you couldn't go here, they would build like a fence around that to make sure that you really didn't get there, right? Um, like you couldn't go to certain, certain marketplaces because you might bump into someone who bumped into somebody else who touched something that was unclean. And by, I guess, through this like chain link, somehow you are unclean as well. Anyway, they had these. But the point is, Peter isn't being asked to violate one of those traditions. He's being asked, told, to violate a law of God. I, I tried to step back and think about, well, what, what would this be for us? What, what, would, what would this look like for us? What law would we violate that would just totally violate our conscience? And this may, I'm sure everyone has a different one. Um, what came to my mind, and work with me here, imagine you received a vision that it is now okay, not only okay, but you are being told to go clubbing. Like, we are all told to go club. I, like, now we, we, can, we can dance, we can drink, we can smoke, we can do whatever else they do at clubs. But we are now not only permitted to do that, but we, can, we are told to go do that. I mean, this is so obviously wrong based on Scripture that, that, that I believe we would have a pretty similar reaction. Wait, what? What are you telling me to do? I think that's what Peter is looking at here. He has to be told multiple times to do this. But... After this vision, if you look at verses 18 through 23 in Acts 10, Peter is kind of left wondering what it meant until some guys show up saying that they have, they have been sent by their master, Cornelius. He received a vision too, and that vision told him to go get Peter. And so Peter goes with him. Then I want to start reading in verse 24. Verse 24, On the following day he entered Caesarea, now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. And as he talked with them, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came even without raising any objection when I was sent for. So I ask, for what reason have you sent me? 
Now, real quick, I think the law that Peter is talking about here isn't actually a law, but a tradition. Because you can go and look throughout the law, and, and you're not going to find anything that they're unable to interact with, with foreigners as they're doing. But still, a, a widely held tradition. And Peter is here. And then Cornelius says after this that he, wants, he asked for Peter to reveal all things commanded by God. And so that's what Peter does. You can read throughout the rest of, of uh of Acts chapter 10 and see what Peter, the message that Peter revealed to him. So one thing I want us to see from, from this particular story is that when we are preaching Jesus to people, we do not confuse that with our own religious preferences or convictions. That the, the evangelist is going to put aside religious preferences and convictions for truth. Truth is what we are seeking to present to others. Um, I wonder how often we do that. I can, I can think of very specific moments in my life where I feel as though I have done this very thing. Asserted a tradition above uh, the truth, or tradition as a law. To the point where I, I believe it actually got in the way of me preaching the gospel to this particular person. Now, I, I think it's important uh, to be able to see here that despite Cornelius' good works, works that, again, were seen as a memorial to God, he needed to know more. There was more that needed to be revealed to him. We see something similar uh, with Apollos in Acts chapter 18. People who were doing good things believed truths about God, but didn't have the whole truth and needed to be taught that. Doctrine is extremely important, but that's not what I'm talking about here. Doctrine is truth, and that's what we need to be preaching to other people. But notice the rest of the message that Peter spoke was not, hey, you gotta be, you got to be, become a Jew first. If you want to be a Christian, you got to become a Jew first. That's, that's not what he says. Notice it wasn't, hey, you got to get yourself a suit. All right? In order for you to attend here, you got to go get yourself a suit. Or it wasn't, well, you can't, you can't sing those hymns anymore. Actually, you can only sing these over here. No, there wasn't any preferential treatment to one thing or another except truth. You can insert whatever tradition you want to in that. But what Peter is giving, the message that Peter is presenting, uh, and you can look throughout uh, chapter 10 and see this, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. That he died, was raised, he is now the judge over all, and as a result, we must believe and be baptized for the remission of our sins. That was the message that he presented. A message that was consistent with the message that he had spoken to Jews prior, to Gentiles right here, and the same message that Paul was going to present throughout the rest of the book of Acts. We need to be focused on that particular message. As we wrap up, Again, there's, there's two things that I hope that, that we're taking from this. I said we would talk about the second thing first. We've talked about that. I hope that you see uh, the need to be ready, to be working on your character, not just to be pleasing to God, but to use it as a way to evangelize uh, to others. I hope we see that we need to be ready. We see that um, we need to be willing to speak to those who are different. We need to meet people where they are and bring Jesus to them, bring the whole gospel to them. And we need to do this despite any fears we may have or despite any preferences we may have for other things. But I want to talk about the first point for just a minute. And that is that every one of us is a chosen instrument. In these stories, we see different types of people presenting the gospel. Philip uh, strikes me as um, an active member of the church. 
Maybe one whose life circumstances allow him to participate a little bit more than others. Like he can, he can participate in or even set up different studies at his home. Or maybe he's even able to travel abroad for the sake of the gospel. The one whose work and family responsibilities allow him to, be, to participate in this a little bit, a little bit more. Are you Philip? Um, have you been afforded opportunities more than maybe other people to be able to participate in this? And I urge you to really think about it because I think there are more people who fit in this Philip category than are willing to admit. Meanwhile, Ananias strikes me as just like some regular guy, some regular member, maybe uh, one who isn't able to participate in evangelism quite in the same way, but is still a godly person. And despite that maybe apparent lower position, as, as maybe worldly people might call it, because it's not lower by any means, but despite that appearance, you see what Ananias was used for was to convert perhaps the most influential evangelist throughout Scripture, and a man named Paul who wrote almost half of the New Testament. Are you Ananias? If so, how are you participating in that role? And lastly, Peter strikes me as this, uh, this person who is operating in a more official capacity, uh, an appointed role, an evangelist or preacher, an elder of some kind, where a burden has been placed on these individuals to be examples of evangelism. Not just, present, not just doing it, but being examples to others in that. So I'll ask all pre- uh, I will ask our preachers, myself included, and I'll ask our elders, are we doing this? Have we been Peter? Have we been humble enough to accept our faults and our misconceptions uh, and, and correct them and eager to present the truth to anybody and everybody who's willing to listen? Now, I want to drive this point home a little further and look at 1 Corinthians 1. This will be the last passage we'll, we'll turn to. I appreciate your patience this morning. 1 Corinthians 1. God, from the beginning, ha- has used His Word to, uh, to or excuse me, use us to spread His Word, which, which might seem kind of backwards because, well, I mean, we, we mess up a lot. So why has He used us in that? Also, wouldn't it just be greater or, or maybe just cooler if an angel went around doing this stuff? Why does God use us? Well, in, these, in the three stories that we read, there is divine intervention. God is communicating uh, with us in some capacity, uh, or with these individuals in some capacity. And yet, wh- why didn't the Spirit just tell the eunuch that it's Jesus talked about in Isaiah? Why didn't Jesus just tell Saul directly that he was the Christ? Why, why didn't the angel of the Lord uh, reveal the complete truth to Cornelius? Well, I think we can find a part of the answer in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning of verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached, to save those who believe. The world largely rejected the message because it seemed foolish. It didn't make sense. It was backwards. It was uneducated. It was unevolved. It was too serious. It was too binding. It was foolish. Yet verse 21 says, It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those 
who believe. And to go along with the foolish message, he has chosen foolish individuals. Look at verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren. 1 Corinthians, the, the people in Corinth. Consider your calling. That there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Wow, that's a, quite, quite a flattering list right there. There were not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, we are the foolish. We are the weak, we are the base things, the despised, the things that are not. So, do you feel inadequate in this? Do you feel unqualified to teach the gospel? Do you feel like, well, other people are better at it than I am, and so let's just let those other people do it? If you feel this way, it's because it's true. We are all unqualified to do this. We are all inadequate. We are all there's, there's always going to be somebody else who might be better, and there's going to be someone else that's better than them. I think that's true of all of us, but the, the, that's not the point. You could rattle off dozens of people who you'd prefer to be standing up here right now, but again, that is not the point. It is for the very reason that God has made us a chosen instrument, because He is using the debased things of this world to shame those who are wise. Notice all the things that we looked at in Acts chapter 8, 9, and 10, those applications that we looked at. Did any one of them have to do with a particular job? No, they all had to do with our character, our choices, things that we have control over, no matter what our life circumstances are or anything like that. Notice there isn't a requirement to be eloquent. Paul talks about that in the very next chapter in 1 Corinthians. There, there's no requirement for a degree from a seminary school. Uh, there, there, there's, there's no requirement to be ordained by some guy. You see, that's not a part of it. It has nothing to do with the accolades of how great we are, but everything to do with how great He is and how He uses us. In verse 31, Paul references Jeremiah 9. I want to look at the verses that surround that. Jeremiah 9, beginning in verse 23, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things. You know what's so great about us? It's who we know. And we know the Lord, the one who shows loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness. Share that to people. Do you know the Lord? Obviously, we spent a lot of our time this morning uh, speaking to those who are Christians, motivating us to, to spread the word. But maybe you don't even know the Lord. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you haven't committed your life to Him yet. Look at the converts that we talked about today. Uh, in the same way that there were three different types of people spreading the word, there were three different types of people receiving 
the word, right? This eunuch, look at the eunuch. Despite his position of power, which by the way was replaceable, which was fragile, this eunuch was not one to be looked up to, I don't think. In fact, he would probably would have been rejected by most people, probably would have been seen as an outcast to most people. Do you feel that way? Do you feel like an outcast to some? I think what we see in the eunuch is a great example of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, seek and you will find. The eunuch was seeking truth. If you feel like the eunuch, stop seeking approval of the world and seek the approval that is far more valuable of God. Or maybe you feel like Saul. First, in 1 Timothy 1, Saul calls himself chief among sinners, which is pretty understandable considering the terrible things that he did. Yet, right before he says that, he recites a trustworthy statement, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Do you feel like Saul? Well, it's for you that Christ came to this world. Or maybe you feel like Cor Cornelius. Cornelius being this good guy by both worldly and godly measures, but he didn't know Jesus. Maybe you're good. Maybe you've done a lot of good things, but you still have not committed your life to Jesus. If that is the case, there is more that you need to do. Are you Cornelius? If you feel like any of these people, I wish that you would follow in their footsteps and say, look, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? If you have any need of this invitation, come up now while we stand and sing.